0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have an amazing list of articles to get to today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week.
2: So let's get started with our first link
0: first link.
2: link our first link comes to us from the drive.com the title is airline pilots landing at lax report a guy in a jetpack flying alongside them
0: Whoa! <laughs> did he wow. live
2: i mean like, <laughs> it doesn't seem like the safest activity totally
0: bonkers yeah well and probably violates a few laws i'm guessing
2: oh for sure and there are still a lot of question marks happening here Basically, on Sunday, August 30th, some airline pilots who were landing at LAX reported seeing a guy in a jetpack flying about 300 yards off their wing while on final approach, meaning descent to the bustling airport. And LAX has some of the busiest air traffic around. Mm -hmm. And also what makes the reports even stranger, and they're noting this is kind of like a scene out of The Rocketeer. The airliners were descending through 3,000 feet when Jetpack Guy, (laughs) not capitalized, this did not get the title case treatment here in the article, showed up next to them. So the air traffic control audio clips are available across online if you want to hear them, but the exchanges kind of went like this. Tower, American 1997, we just passed a guy in a jetpack. The tower responds, (laughs) American 1997, okay, thank you. Were they off to your left or right side? (laughs) And the American pilots reply, off the left side, maybe 300 yards or so, about our altitude. (laughs) Um, And then a SkyWest pilot also confirmed the sighting. They said, "Uh, we just saw the guy passing by us in the (laughs) jetpack. So people are just noting this in like super neutral language. And then the tower alerted an incoming JetBlue flight to the reported hazard by saying, JetBlue 23, use caution, a person in a jet pack reported 300 yards south of the L.A. final at about 3,000 feet, 10-mile final. JetBlue responds, JetBlue 23, we heard and we are definitely looking. And then another pilot <laughs> chimed in. Only in L.A. (laughs) 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 So, yeah, having some guy barreling through the skies in some sort of jetpack around the approach path to the airport, especially at the same altitude as the aircraft that are making their way through the landing corridor, isn't just bonkers. It's absolutely dangerous. And they're trying to figure out who this is because, you know, there are a number of new jetpack-like designs that are remarkably capable, but they all have very limited range and most have only very low-altitude flight envelopes. There's the guy, Eve Rossi. He's also nicknamed Jet Man. He's pretty famous <laughs> for having his wing jetpack, which is capable of such a feat, but his flights have always occurred under really controlled and well-coordinated circumstances, And in sanitized airspace. They're also high profile in nature. They also require a mothership to launch from, like a helicopter, or at least a very high point to leap from. So they're also thinking it might be possible this was some sort of drone that was made to look like a dude in jetpack. But Mm. that's kind of a long shot, right? Yeah. (laughs) The only other thing they can think of is this may have been some sort of flying car or mobility solution that was just described as a jetpack from pilots who are seeing something happening. But it still seems like a reach, even with this scenario. Regardless, the realities of such a stunt are the same irrespective of the technology behind the craft that was involved. So It sounds like a publicity stunt. I mean, if somebody is trying to perfect
0: this technology and thinks it's ready to start selling to people, the best way to do it would be to get,
2: go viral on a particular buzzing the tower, so to speak. Yeah, but if anybody does go public with claiming, you know, responsibility for it, they're going right. to get fined to here and
1: back. It's probably Elon Musk. That's my
2: bet. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, I choose to look
0: at it in a positive light. I I think jetpack technology would be great if it could somehow be, you know, environmentally sound, which I'm sure it can't be. But I, mean, <laughs> I would love to jetpack to
2: the store. That would be great.
0: So if this is like yeah. the first step in attaining that for
2: your average person go for it man (laughs) i appreciate your optimism that eventually this is something that will be used for civilian use Mm -hmm. (laughs) as opposed to literally anything else most people are going to want a jetpack for but dream on baby (laughs) that's right i'm gonna i'm gonna keep my hopes up (laughs) (laughs) next link
1: next Next link this article comes to us from bbc.com and it is titled the companies that help people vanish
0: Ooh. Like witness protection vanish, or like I faked my death vanish?
1: Maybe a little bit of both. Oh. So, yeah, each year some choose to disappear and abandon their lives, but in Japan, there are actual companies that can help those who are looking to disappear into thin air. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I've personally heard stories about people who have just, you know, up and disappeared, and it's practically oh, yeah. a joke to <laughs> go out for cigarettes and never come back. Like, that's yeah, now sure. a meme.
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, I yeah. mean,
1: it
0: makes sense that it would be in Japan, for them to say, let's turn this into a business. We can help with this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, after the Japan help you break up your marriage business uh, last week or a few weeks back, I'm not surprised by this at all. Yeah.
2: Businesses around life engineering do seem to be a pretty common practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: So in Japan, these people are sometimes referred to as Johatsu. And that's the Japanese word for evaporation, but it also refers to people who will vanish on purpose into thin air and continue to conceal their whereabouts, potentially for years or even decades. Hmm. So they actually interviewed one of these johatsus for this article, and his name is Sugimoto, his family name. He's 42 years old, and he says, I got fed up with human relationships. I took a small suitcase and just disappeared. And he says that back in his small hometown, everybody knew him because of his family and their prominent local business, which he was expected to carry on. But having that role foisted on him caused him such distress that he just abruptly left town forever and told no one where he was going. Between inescapable debt and loveless marriages, the motivations that push Johatsu to evaporate can vary. And regardless of their reasons, they turn to these companies that help them through the process. And these operations are called night moving services. Mm -hmm. And they will help these people discreetly remove themselves from their lives and will even provide lodging for them in secret whereabouts when necessary.
2: Kind of like the Uh, Knights train in Harry Potter, right? Yeah. (laughs) You stick your wand out, they'll take you where you need to go.
1: Yeah, exactly. Except instead of going to school, you disappear from school. And, and everything else. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> so Sho Hattori is somebody who founded a night moving company in the 90s when Japan's economic bubble burst. Mm-hmm. Yep. And at first he thought that only financial ruin would really be the reason to drive people to flee their lives. But he soon realized that there were social reasons. And he claims that what he does is really support people to start a second life.
2: I mean, if you think about it as an alternative to suicide, and Japan has a huge suicide sure. culture and rates of suicide, this is kind of like a way to do that without actually dying yeah, I mean yeah. it still but causes like, a lot of distress to everybody else in your life that you're completely ghosting but
0: yeah I mean that's kind of my question is like do these people that they abandoned do they know like oh they're still alive they've just walked away or do they have no idea what's happened this person Zero just closure. disappeared yeah.
1: yeah I think it varies In Japan, apparently privacy is fiercely protected. Missing people can freely withdraw money from ATMs without being flagged, and their family members can't even access security videos that might have captured their loved one on the run. Police will not intervene unless there's another reason, like a crime or an accident. So all the family can really do is pay a lot for a private detective or just wait. That's it.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So like a missing person's case just isn't even a thing unless you've got some evidence that there was a, a murder or you know robbery Far or play. something. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. But now the article gets into what the loved ones' experience is like. So, a woman who remained anonymous and whose 22-year-old son went missing and hasn't contacted her since said that she was, well, shocked. And he had failed after quitting his job twice. He must have felt miserable with his failure. So she drove to where he was living, searched the premises, and then waited in the car for days to see if he showed up, and he just never did.
0: I I can kind of see why maybe he wanted to get away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: and she says that the police haven't been helpful, and they told her that they could only get involved if it was a suspected suicide. But since there was no note, they won't help. Hmm. And she says, I understand there are stalkers. Information can be misused. This is a necessary law, perhaps. But criminals, stalkers, and parents who cannot search for their own children, all of them are treated the same way due to the Mm. protection. With the current law, without money, all I can do is check if a dead body is my son, the only thing left for me. Yeah, (laughs) kind of intense. So for the Juhatsu themselves, these feelings of regret and sadness stick with many of them long after they leave their lives behind. So Sugimoto, the businessman who left his wife and kids in that small town, tells us that I constantly have a feeling that I've done something wrong. I haven't seen my children in a year. I told oh. them I'm on a business trip. Uh, and he says that's his only regret, which was leaving them. Uh, yeah, he's... I mean,
0: it should be. <laughs>
1: yeah. <Like> the regret. <laughs> he's currently staying in a home tucked away in a residential district of Tokyo. And the night moving company that's housing him is run by a woman called Saita, who's also going by her family name only to preserve anonymity. So she was actually a johatsu herself who went missing 17 years ago, and she disappeared after being in a physically abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. And she describes it as being a missing person even now. She says she has various types of clients. There are people who run away from serious domestic violence or ego and self-interest, and she just doesn't judge. She never says your case isn't serious enough. Everybody has individual struggles.
0: Hmm. And presumably money. I mean, (laughs) they're paying her for the service.
1: Yeah, that's got to be, I mean, I imagine uplifting your entire life and disappearing is probably a pretty expensive procedure overall.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm still trying to imagine, like, so you, you go and you run away and you start a new life, but are you getting a job under a new name? I mean, I guess it's easier in Japan to secure yourself a new identity, but it feels like it would be pretty
2: hard here. Right. Yeah. It almost makes it sound like when you kind of go underground with this service, you stay underground mm-hmm. and just try to keep a low profile as opposed to starting over and maybe redoing what you did. But mm-hmm. maybe that's the point, right? Yeah.
1: Nowhere here. I feel like the article would have mentioned if they did something really really spicy, like, you know, engineering new identities and social security mm-hmm, cards mm-hmm. or whatever the equivalent is in Japan and stuff like that. But they don't. So I think this is really just people disappearing from their lives and trying yeah. to stay hidden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for people like Sugimoto, these companies help him address those struggles of his own. But even though he managed to disappear, it doesn't mean that the traces of his old life don't linger. And he says, only my first son knows the truth. He's 13 years old. He says, the words I can't forget are, what dad decided is dad's life, and I can't change it. Oh and That's pretty mature sounds... for a 13-year-old. Yeah, and, and he ends the article by saying, it sounds more mature than me, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, oh. it kind of does.
1: Yeah. Oh. So at least, you know... These are clearly difficult situations for yeah. everybody involved, but at least there's some level of self awareness. Which is nice.
0: Yeah. I guess I mean, definitely I kinda,
1: interesting for us.
0: I kind of feel like putting your name in a news article about it blows your cover. Like, yeah. like everybody knows where he is now, or at least knows that he's still alive and out there. Maybe that's what he wanted.
2: Maybe this is the beginning of him reaching out to reestablish oh, contact. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's a great point.
2: It must be hard to market these kinds of services, too. So that might be part of this is just like a press release in a way. Well, and I'm sure
0: they get harassed by people. Like if somebody in your life just up and disappears, the first place you're going to go is these night moving companies where you're like, okay, I'm going to pound on your door until you tell me where he went.
1: Yeah, I imagine they have to have some pretty serious security or Mm -hmm. obfuscation. There's a lot going on here. (laughs) (laughs) Worth worth a deep Google dive. That's
0: right. As in most things with Japan. There's a lot going on. <laughs> <Super> Absolutely. <fair. laughs>
1: Next link. Next, Next link. link.
0: All right. Well, this one comes from Atlas Obscura. It's a little bit of a, a mystery with a resolution. It's called The Mystery of the Missing Portrait of Robert Hook. So Robert Hooke was a 17th century scientist. He was a contemporary of Isaac Newton. He discovered the cell, among other things. That's sort of his big thing. Mm. And he did a whole bunch of stuff in mathematics and he was an accomplished artist, etc. But so the weird thing about Robert Hooke is there are no contemporary portraits of him. We don't have any pictures of him. And that's weird because... First of all, he was fairly famous, and especially Mm -hmm. when a particular discovery was published back in the 1600s, a portrait always accompanied it. So there would be like a Mm -hmm. picture of the telescope that you invented and then a picture of you, and that was just a standard practice. But Mm -hmm. 1665's Micrographia, which was the first scientific bestseller, according to this article, it includes only his sketching of cork cells, not him. And it it just seems really bizarre because, moreover, he was a founding member, a fellow, a curator and a secretary of the Royal Society of London, which effectively guarantees that he sat for a portrait at some point. Like this was Hmm. it's like you get your headshots when you go out to L.A. or whatever. It's just a thing. You get a portrait. done if You're part of the Royal Society. So the guy who wrote this article, Larry Griffin, was like, I'm sure there's a portrait out there. We just have to find it. So he started kind of backwards. He started with who would be the most likely painter of Hook's portrait and he decided it was Mary Beale who was a well-known portraitist at the time who did several other members of the Royal Society and she was known to be an associate of Hook and sure enough he started googling and he found a painting by Mary Beale that's called simply Portrait of a Mathematician So, you know, it's a picture. We don't know if it's him. It does physically resemble him to the best of our knowledge. We don't have a lot of physical descriptions of him, but we know he had gray eyes and natural brown hair that had, quote, an excellent moist curl that hung down over his forehead, uh, which (laughs) I suppose is represented in the picture. He does have curly hair. He is not wearing a wig, this person in the portrait, meaning he's not nobility, which most high ranking scientists were, but Hook was Mm -hmm. not. So that kind of narrows down the Venn diagram of who this could be. Also, Hook was known to have a severe spinal curvature he's kind of a hunchback. And in this painting, it's not really shown, but he has this big kind of floofy cape hiding his back. So theoretically, Mm. the person in the painting could have had that and was just sort of, you know, hiding it for vanity reasons. But more Mm. important than the physical attributes of the guy are the other items in the picture. So official portraits at that time were usually painted with specific items to kind of indicate their unique accomplishments in science.
1: Oh, that's cool.
0: So the guy is off to his left. He's pointing at a mathematical proof with a little compass. And Griffing actually zoomed in and compared it to a bunch of actual published proofs. And he says that the sketchy lines in the portrait match exactly with <gasps> an unpublished 1685 manuscript by Hooke in which he geometrically proved that a constant central force produces an elliptical orbit. And the elliptical aspect also matches with the compass because you're drawing these curves. Then Mm. also to the man's left is an orrery, which is a 3D model of the solar system. You know, one of these things where like the planets can spin independently and you've got the rings around. And Beale actually painted this picture decades before the first official orrery was built by a man named Thomas Tompion, And Hook worked for Tompion. So of all the people who would have a prototype before this thing was sort of officially released, Hook would be one of the few. And yeah. he almost certainly helped Tampion design and work on it as well. So it sort of would be counted as one of his accomplishments. A third thing in the picture, there is a big landscape painting behind the man, sort of like a painting within a painting. And the landscape shows the Church of St. Michael in London, which Hook did an architectural redesign for a few years before this painting was painted. So it seems pretty clearly, I mean, I I feel like the guy made a compelling case that this is a portrait of Robert Hook.
2: Which is great. It's quite the forensics work, too, in terms of tying together, like, work employment history and the kind of things that he was working on academically to tie in. Like, yeah, yeah. sold. So the big question that remains is why isn't his picture
0: included in all of these publications and things when clearly he had one, it looks like? And mm-hmm. uh, the answer is apparently Isaac Newton did it.
2: You remember I mentioned he was a <gasps>
0: contemporary. Uh. Oh. Yeah.
2: <laughs> were they rivals? Was this a nemesis move? Yeah, Hook
0: and Newton were at odds. Newton was apparently kind of a jerk. I think we've kind of discussed that a little bit before. But uh, <laughs> they were both working on a lot of the same discoveries. They had a famous tiff where Newton was insisting that light was a particle and Hook was insisting that it was a wave. And, of course, now we know it's both. So uh, they were both right. But specifically, <laughs> the reason this particular picture might have gotten tossed in the garbage is is that in 1684, Hooke claimed that he could prove Kepler's first law, which has to do with ellipses, which would be the unpublished work that he has with him in the portrait. And in 1687, yeah. three years later, Newton published his proof of it in Principia Mathematica and didn't mention Hooke's contributions at all. Right? So this Ruined. was sort of like the crisis moment of their falling out. This was the point where they were both like, I will never speak to you again. You're awful. And basically this portrait would be evidence that hook got there first right he's painted with Mm -hmm. this particular paper that he says he did and newton's like no no no, i came up with that idea and then Mm -hmm. hook died in 1703 which was the same year that newton became president of the royal society so he would have had access to all of the royal society's portraits and you know possessions and everything and you know we can't know for sure but it's basically believed by a lot of people that Newton just tossed it in the trash. He was like, I don't Whoa. like this guy. Uh, I don't want evidence that he got there first. And he just got rid of it. He was like, I'm never going to print this portrait because it's incriminating. Dadgummit. And in fact, it's ironic because when the painting first reappeared in the 1960s, it was ironically mislabeled as a portrait of Newton. Probably because of the elliptical <laughs> proof that's shown in there. <laughs> Oh, huh. so, his devious scheme actually worked. That's right. Well, and they've now figured out it's definitely not Newton. But of course, Larry Griffing is like, well, we know who it is. It's definitely Robert Hook. Unfortunately, the painting was last sold by Sotheby's auction house in 2006 to an anonymous buyer. They will not say who has it now. So we don't really know where it is. We know it's out there. And the Isaac's oh, children, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly got to keep the legacy. going. <laughs> but at any rate, this guy is, you know, basically pleading for, hey, whoever has it, it'd be really cool if you could like donate it to this museum or at least put it on display so we could all acknowledge Hook's contributions because he's not as well known as Newton, certainly and he kind of, of should course be not. if you uh
2: yeah but then it also undoes the whole myth at least a portion of the myth and legend of isaac and you know if history has taught us anything we really really hate revising things that we have held sacrosanct for centuries that's right <laughs> So, you know, Newton's a jerk. And hopefully,
1: <laughs> I mean, this,
0: I, think, I feel like this guy laid out a really good argument. It's somewhat unassailable, the amount of detail that he goes into and all the evidence he has. So maybe yeah. this is the turning point when we say, yeah, actually, Robert Hooke was cool, too. We can
2: make a musical out of him. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> next link. Next,
0: next link. link.
2: Uh, this next link comes from the BBC. Why the French love to complain. Aww. Oh. <laughs> I guess there's a reason. Like, it's not just... <laughs> well, because this is kind of a, a cultural lens. And again, this comes from the BBC. I have been long entertained with sort of the British editorialization mm-hmm. of French culture. You know, it's it's something that has been kind yeah, of... Yeah, speaking of rivalries that go way back. That's- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. But this is kind of like a measured approach at looking at how these conversational ticks of a complaining culture are unique in France. And they're basically a couple of words to complain in France. Like, they have the word supplantre, which is used for regular old complaining. There's "porte plant, <laughs> which is for complaining officially. But then there's ralais, which is complaining just for the fun of it. And there are kind of guardrails about how to do this correctly, right? It's one of these sort of subtle nuances where a French person could probably tell how French you are or are not based on how and when and where you complain. Wow. So you might râler about doing something but still do it begrudgingly mm-hmm. whereas porte-plant implies you will not be doing something and someone will be hearing about right. why. <laughs> Sounds like I'm putting my foot down. <laughs> exactly versus just grumble grumble grouch grumble. <laughs> <laughs> So in France, a complaint is considered an appropriate and frequent conversation starter among strangers, right? You could be talking about a <laughs> restaurant by focusing on the poor service during an otherwise great meal. Or you could highlight the fact that east-facing windows in your new flat means, oh, now you have to buy curtains. But <laughs> <laughs> a Canadian journalist and co-author of The Bonjour Effect, Julie Barlow, explained, when you're saying something negative to Americans, it sounds like you're closing the conversation. But Mm -hmm. in France, These kinds of comments are perceived as a way to invite other people's opinions. Uh, North Americans in particular are not as comfortable with confrontation or criticism as the French are. So Raleigh then comes across as something that's more intelligent than being too starry-eyed and optimistic about things. In other words, it's sort of a sign, an invitation for an intellectual discourse or duel to kind of flex your smarts. (laughs) Like, I've picked out all the problems in this common thing. (laughs) Right. Basically, I can see past the artifice and the glitz Uh to look at things as they really are. Do you share this position as well, which can establish a kind of bond of intimacy among strangers? Mm -hmm. Anna Poliani, who's a Franco-American Hungarian writer, and she's head of the creative writing department at the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking. She posits that this distinction may stem from a core fear shared by many Americans, which is being perceived as a loser, and she notes There's no word for that in France. In order to be a loser, the world around you needs to think of things in terms of winning. And that's not necessarily how people see social interactions in France. Because in France, the conversations could instead be likened to duels. And the opening punch may be a complaint, which is something that makes people seem critical and like they're thinking and not naive. Right. As opposed to like in
0: America, if you're basically saying like, oh, my window's face east. They're like, oh, well, you obviously aren't successful at
2: your job and didn't make enough money and you... Have n't yeah.
0: managed to be truly successful
2: if your house sucks. Right. Or you, can you even fix this problem? If you can't fix it, something's wrong with you because American can-do individualism attitude. Every problem has a solution, That's right. right. <laughs> and so this uh, head of creative writing, Poliani, she experiences firsthand when she moved from France, where she was raised, to Iowa. And she noticed when she moved there, people often kept themselves from negative speech as long as they could, only unleashing a barrage of complaints when it had built up far beyond what they could stand. So <laughs> it wasn't complaining the way that the French knew it. It was venting. Mm -hmm. It felt like people aren't giving themselves permission to complain in a way that actually builds intimacy. They were just sort of not doing it until it was impossible not to, which is kind of why we get these like geysers of eruptions. Right. But then
0: it makes everybody around you feel bad because we're living in this culture where complaining is negative. It makes me feel bad when I listen to somebody complaining about something. For sure. And
2: the article also notes that complaining is not always positive, right? If you complain too often, you get caught in a spiral and it can actually rewire your brain to always focus on the negative. But the difference in for French raleurs, and they may avoid this unfortunate side effect in part because they rarely complain about their own lives and rather about external issues. Mm. So according to a poll on the practice of <laughs> complaining, 48% of French people surveyed said the thing they complained most was the government. Well, that makes so,
0: sense. I can I <laughs> get behind
2: that. Exactly. I mean, there's plenty to complain about, right? So even, you know, in a recent article, and politico that the French opinion of President Emmanuel Macron's handling of the pandemic was overwhelmingly negative. Mm. But personal issues are really low on the list of things that the French choose to rail about. 23% complain when people don't call them back. <laughs> 33% complain when they can't find their keys or their phone. And only 12% complain about issues linked to their children, which is like a super personal thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so the takeaway here is that perhaps the French are optimistic and positive about themselves and their lives, but they tend to be really hard on their country. So don't go to a party and praise France because people are going to laugh at you. (laughs) 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 They're thinking, you know, the fact that the French focus on issues that are not personal and not related to themselves may indeed be healthier. A 2013 study in biological psychiatry found that attempts to regulate negative emotions could be linked with increased risk of cardiovascular disease, Mm -hmm. while a 2011 study from UT Austin found that bottling up negative emotions can make people more aggressive. And so the idea here is that, you know, you're not complaining because you actually want to change anything. It's kind of a cultural and conversational tick. And, you know, Americans, we have these conversational ticks like, asking how someone is without really caring to know. Right. You know. You're checking out in the grocery store. You don't really care. No. You really want to get into a <laughs> don't life actually story. do unload how- on me. Yeah. No, not at all. <laughs> One study conducted at the University of Oklahoma showed that complaining can have a positive impact on connectivity, and research also shows it can be a useful tool for bonding. I mean, we all know trauma bonding is a thing, but maybe it doesn't have to take a trauma to get us to bond. Maybe we just need to complain about things that are beyond our control, let off a little bit of that steam, and get to know someone in the process <laughs> maybe
0: i don't know i'm not sure i could get over my inherent but that's me being non-confrontational i think i'm a- i'm exactly what you're describing i don't want to yeah. have that negative conversation at all i want to yeah. i want to hear about yeah. happy parts
2: well and, and part of what they're pointing out is that for the french if somebody's complaining there's some authenticity there right mm-hmm. because when someone's complaining they're basically being vulnerable And in the French, at least, are reassured by that authenticity. Right, right. Which makes sense. You know, I think if you could completely shift your perspective, I can see how it could be good in that perspective. I just don't know that I have the personal strength to uh, become. And you may not need to shift it. You may just need to expand your spectrum to allow or account for the possibility that that could be a thing. Right. Just don't let it bottle up. Focus on the external things so that you're not locking yourself into a loop of my life sucks and I can't do anything. But we got plenty to complain about, y'all.
1: <laughs>
2: right. <laughs> well, and if it means
0: I can't be French, that's okay. I'm all right with that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> you should write for the BBC, perhaps. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Next link. Next,
1: Next link. link. This article comes to us from conversation.com and it is titled... Only one in ten medical treatments are backed by high quality evidence. Oh, oh dear.
2: That's disconcerting.
1: Yeah. <laughs> is this so,
2: global or specific to the US? Cause I uh, mean, I like to rail about our healthcare system all the ding-dong day.
1: I believe that this is the US.
2: Okay. Well,
0: I wonder to what degree that's like, okay, we know for sure this medicine is safe but we're using it off-label for this other disease. Like, I don't think it necessarily means this is just absolute nonsense
2: we've pulled out of our butt nine times out of ten. I think it's... <laughs> it's more, but you're thinking like we have some information, some guidelines that essentially enlist all Americans going to their doctor as being part of a guinea pig trial. Yeah, somebody's got to do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, so the analysis was published in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology. So that is based in the US, I believe. What they did is they reviewed 154 Cochrane systematic reviews published between 2015 and 2019. And only 15 of those, 9.9%, had high-quality evidence according to the gold standard method, which is called GRADE, mm. a.k.a. grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation. Mm. Nice little acronym work there. Yeah. <laughs> and among these, only two had actual statistically significant results. Ugh. Using the same system, 37% had moderate, 31% had low, and 22% had very low-quality evidence. So Ugh. that's even worse than than one in 10 really well so and it
0: doesn't mean the studies are invalid because finding no correlation is also useful information it's just a question of are we then using those medications or those treatments even though the evidence said no that wasn't connected right
1: yeah definitely so the 154 studies were chosen because they were updates of a previous review of 608 systematic reviews conducted in 2016 hmm. And so that allows us to check whether or not those reviews prior had been updated with new evidence and they were not. So (laughs) in the 2016 study, 13.5% reported that treatments were supported by high-quality evidence, so there was actually a trend towards lower quality as more evidence was gathered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there were a few limitations to this meta-study. So first, the sample size may not have been representative, and other studies found that over 40% of medical treatments are likely to be effective. So Mm -hmm. despite the quality of evidence, according to the grade standard, the treatments were still likely to be effective, although they don't put any numbers to what likely means. Mm -hmm. And it's also possible that the Gold standard for ranking this evidence is just too strict. Mm-hmm. So many poor quality trials are being published, and the study just reflects that. And because of the pressure to publish or perish to survive in academia, right. more and more of these studies are being done. Ugh. And in PubMed alone, which is a database of published medical papers, more than 12,000 new clinical trials are published every year, yeah. which is 30 trials published every day. So systematic reviews were designed to synthesize these, but now there's just too many of them. Mm -hmm. So to solve the problem of too many individual studies, they ramped up a bunch of meta studies and now they have too many meta studies. (laughs) Isn't this like a
2: perfect opportunity for machine learning and AI to basically develop algorithms to filter out? Like, can't we fix this with science? Yeah, and just to collate the huge amount of data. I mean, it may be that even
0: if most of the data is good, you have to look at 12,000 studies and compare them all to find out what is the actual information being conveyed.
1: Right. Absolutely. And the evidence-based medicine movement has been banging a drum about the need to improve the quality of the research for more than 30 years. But paradoxically, there's still no evidence that things have improved despite a proliferation of guidelines and mm-hmm. guidance. So, well, yeah, 19... who's
2: actually in charge? Of
1: yeah.
0: It's all well and good to get up there and be like, someone should do something about this. Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we agree. Yeah. In 1994, Doug Altman, a professor of statistics and medicine at Oxford, pleaded for less but better research. Mm-hmm. And this would have been good, but the opposite has happened. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So, you know, we could blame grade itself. Usually you want to blame your tools as a last resort, Mm -hmm. but it is probably true that the grade system is too harsh for certain contexts. For instance, it's nearly impossible for any trial evaluating a exercise regime to be of high quality. Because it can't be blinded. Anyone doing exercise will know they're in the exercise group, right. while those in the control group will know that they're not doing exercise. Right. So these inherent problems condemn exercise trials to be judged of lower quality, no matter how useful safe exercise is. The other piece is that the method that was used for this meta-review was very strict. So whereas the systematic reviews had many outcomes, each of which could be high-quality This review was focused on the primary outcomes. So, for example, the primary outcome in a review of painkillers would be reduction in pain, though they might also then measure a range of secondary outcomes ranging from anxiety reduction to Mm. patient satisfaction. If we look at many outcomes, there's a danger that one of them will be high quality just by chance. So to mitigate that, this review looked at whether any outcome, even if it wasn't the primary outcome, was high quality. And they found that one in five treatments had high quality evidence for any outcome, Mm -hmm. which is still not awesome
0: but it's more than they expected to find if you're thinking that's not what you're looking for at least it you know it just it goes to show that we don't really know what we're doing half the time we put a medicine in and we think it's a heart medicine and it turns out it's viagra i mean it's you know yeah there's side effects we don't know are coming (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. or you're trying to make a tire and you end up with saran wrap which (laughs) are maybe the two opposite things (laughs) it's not medical science at least no uh (laughs) Ultimately, we need less but better research to address these uncertainties so that we can become more confident that the treatments we actually take work.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's something to be said as well for knowing your own body and just saying, yeah, there's a lot of studies, but they're all aggregate. At the end of the day, if this medication causes this side effect in you, it doesn't matter if it does it for only you. I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm a big proponent of do what's right for your own body, but- Mm -hmm. That also probably comes from the fact that I don't like people telling me what to do. So I'm like, no, I've decided what's right, which is not very scientific or rigorous. Yeah.
1: Next link. Next, Next link. link.
0: All right. Well, I have a weird, quirky one here at the end. This is from Spencer Soper at Bloomberg. The title is Amazon drivers are hanging smartphones in trees to get more work. Huh? So there's, huh. a lo- there's a lot to unpack there. And basically, it all comes down to the gig economy. Right. We have these delivery mechanisms now where a gig driver will get a notification on their phone saying, hey, we've got a delivery in your area. Do you want to accept it? Yes, you go. You pick up the package, you go drop it off. But because of COVID-19, there's a big influx in people trying to be delivery drivers because there's been a lot of loss of business faced by Uber and Lyft drivers. You're not taking Mm -hmm. people anymore. So now there's a flood of people all trying to take these relatively limited number of food deliveries and grocery deliveries and things like that. And apparently, I didn't realize this, Amazon actually has something called Amazon Flex, which is a similar thing where basically instead of putting it on a big truck and making a whole bunch of Amazon deliveries, there's occasional little instant delivery things that mm-hmm. they contract out to individual drivers one at a time. Right, and, the courier business. <laughs> right, exactly. But because of the huge number of people who are trying to get in on this now, the competition's really fierce. And you end up with quite a few drivers literally just sitting in the parking lot of these places waiting for jobs. Mm. But- The algorithm of this app goes to the closest cars first, assuming, oh, well, there's probably only one or two people in the area, not understanding that there's 30 people sitting in the parking lot. And cell towers these days can determine your location to within 20 feet, which means being at the front of the parking lot is closer than being at the back. And Mm -hmm. being on the tree on the sidewalk is closer than both. And so what these drivers have figured out to do is they take a phone, they hang it in the tree right next to the building. They sync their own phone to it, and then they can park wherever they want. They can be a couple of blocks away. It doesn't matter because their phone is going to get the ping first. They can accept it, and they can basically siphon off all of the gigs before anybody who's sitting a little further back in the parking lot can get to it.
2: Wow, and wow. it is. I mean,
0: it's gaming the system, and it looks really funny. There's a great picture in the article of literal smartphones hanging in trees outside of a Whole Foods somewhere. <laughs>
2: it's so wacky. This is like the ultimate fusion of like futuristic high tech, and then complete backwards dissolution right. of
1: dystopian. Civilization. <laughs> this is cyberpunk. Yeah, we are it in is cyberpunk. Yeah,
0: totally. Absolutely. And, of course, there's many drivers who are upset by this con, basically. Uh Uh-huh. The driver who reported this behavior to Amazon says there's actually a middleman running most of the phones in most of these schemes. And that middleman is using a second app to then dispatch the calls they get to a set of drivers who have paid to be in on the scheme. So they're kind of Uh. running their own secondary little business in there. And, in fact, one of the reasons they use multiple phones is to catch more routes, right, because they're able to get two or three pings right in a row. But it's also to hide the behavior from Amazon because they would notice if everything was going to one phone, right? They would obviously like we sent you out 15 minutes ago. How can you possibly be back? They said in some cases as well, drivers join this scheme because they don't qualify to become a driver on their own. They maybe don't have a valid driver's license or they're not legally able to work. This is trickle down desperation. Yeah, it, it totally is. Absolutely. And in fact, an anonymous source who was supposedly very aware of what's going on in this scheme reported that the middleman takes the route at $18 an hour, which is their standard rate, but then pays these unauthorized drivers only $10 an hour to complete it. So they're basically oh just gosh. skimming off 40 percent of the profits right off the top for doing nothing but sitting there and rerouting the gigs that Amazon has already routed to somebody. The source who raised this complaint claims Amazon knows about it, but does nothing. He says he's emailed them. He said, look, you got to put a stop to this. It's not fair. It's not reasonable. And Amazon responded to that email saying they're going to investigate it, but they're going to be unable to divulge the outcome of their inquiry. So mm. it was just a
2: giant screw you. They're not going to do anything about it. Well, they also might be doing this as a way to kind of evaluate where to plug the leaks in this trickle-down desperation it so that be. they can remain being that middleman since their whole business model is basically, what are they doing? Okay, we're going to do that and we're going to do it leaner at the end. Right.
0: Well, <laughs> if, if they've now figured out that they can pay some drivers $10 an hour, I'm sure they would like to know that information yeah, too. keep <laughs> the $8 at,
2: for themselves. Keep it at Amazon.
0: Yeah.
1: At first, I thought you were going in an optimistic. Stick direction, Angie, and I was surprised, Aww. but then you brought it home.
2: Right, right, oh, right. Bro- <laughs> She's not saying anything nice about Jeff Bezos.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, not in this example,
2: because I mean, this is just something that I think we're seeing at an alarming and escalating rate, and sure. it's something that we should be genuinely worried about. Yeah, that's, that's a fair point. <laughs> I'm just alluring guys. That's right, we should
0: all be complaining in French. Mm-hmm. That's the, We can't complain in English, <laughs> it doesn't count. <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're glad you've joined us. There are, of course, many articles we didn't have time to get to. Some of those articles include Can Life Exist Around a Black Hole? The Radical Plan to Save the Fastest Sinking City in the World? And Engineers Have Figured Out How to Make Interactive Paper. So all that, plus all the articles we talked about today, plus lots more can be found at damninteresting.com. If you would like to support us and help us keep our humble little podcast on the air, you can go to patreon.com slash damn interesting In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Waisper Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.